Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. Oh, yeah, that's probably good. All right, clap. Oh, wait, which one of us is overlapped? I always go second. I'm, I'm expecting to go second. Let's try that again. Here we go. Your expectations Don't betray talk you. while you're clapping. Why? Be- you literally ruined the whole point of the clap. The whole point of the clap is to see on the sound bars... One, two, three, with no sound in between, or else you can't visually identify Does it. three really matter? I know a lot of people just do one. One more time. Much better. Okay, so that's a perfect example of, of yeah what I was wanting to talk about and something that I've been noticing a lot recently in my life. And I don't know if it's one of those things where like you notice it once and then you just start seeing it everywhere. Your glasses shattered. Right. Expectations is something that I've been noticing... Uh, or how much of our emotional state of mind is based around expectations, at least for me. And I'm curious if it is for the two of you, where my whole psyche is based on something happening the way that I expected that it would, assumed that it would. And if it happened, then I'm in a good mood. If it doesn't happen in a, in a bad way, then I'm in a bad mood. So if you're expecting to win the Battlegrounds match and you've got the stronger board... But your hits are all wrong, and you end up losing like a 10%er or something like that. You get frustrated. I know how it is. Yeah, it's probability. Well, in that particular case, but it doesn't always have to be probability. If you were expecting your date to show up at 6 for dinner and they show up at 6.15, I don't know if that's probability-based, unless you want to go down the rabbit hole. Well, you mean when you used to go on dates before you were married, you didn't consult a normal distribution? Uh, I like the imagery of consulting a normal distribution as if it's like consulting the the oracle, like a crystal ball that us regress to the mean. Nancy Reagan uh, demanded that her husband's schedule as president after he was nearly shot be based on astrologer's calendar. Yeah, I've, I've always heard some things there. I was never sure if they were real or not. No, that's real. Okay. Speaking of food, though, that's a good one. Where if you're expecting something's going to taste a certain way and then it doesn't, like, it doesn't even it doesn't even matter if it actually tastes good or not. If that's just not what your mouth was prepared for, that will completely change the experience. In my mind, usually for the negative. Like, I, I tend to want things to play out the way that uh, I expected. I, I guess surprises are can be good, but on average, I think I prefer things to, to happen the way that they're expected. Well, I find this surprising that you're the one between the two of us bringing this up because we all know that I'm the person who just likes to like put media that I've seen before on repeat over and over again. And clearly there's some kind of expectation thing going on there. I've seen Star Trek First Contact for the 100,000th time and I want to see it again just because I know exactly what's going to happen and I enjoy that. Whereas you're like the guy who always likes, never wants to do the same thing twice, at least as far as media is concerned. Yeah, that's true. I'm also someone though whose plans matter a lot and plans deviating really can bother me. Where if I'm expecting someone's going to show up at a certain time and then for whatever reason that happens a few hours later, like I have to fight against my urge to be put into a funk over that. Yeah, I feel that. I mean, we definitely both suffer from having our plans dashed maybe disproportionately making us angrier than we should. I certainly suffer from that too. But I I couldn't tell you since we're related whether that's like a particularly enhanced thing for us or if that is something that everybody experiences. So I guess we'll have to ask Zach. Yeah, I know. I feel it. Um, I think the examples differ from person to person, but I certainly have expectations of of the way that things should be. Certainly if anyone who's ever worked with me will agree to is that I have very rigid ideas about how things at work should be. And 
I'm very vocal about my opinions about how those should be. And when people deviate from that, they I attempt to rectify what I perceive to be the wrong configuration, where the wrong configuration only is wrong in my head. There's no absolute objective rightness or wrongness for how something should be designed. It's only wrong in my own expectations about how it should be. That's interesting hearing you describe yourself at that level of rigidity, because I do not associate you with the concept of rigidity at all. That's sort of the point that I was getting at. Neither of you have worked with me. And so I, I wanted to come up with an example that it's like, we were talking about food, we were talking about plans, we were talking about media, um, I'm talking about work. And so the thing that we each have expectations about how they should operate might be individual, right? So Tom was expressing his surprise that you, David, don't put on first contact for the 100,000th and one time. That's not the, the same type of expectations and rigidity that Tom was talking about. But this is all a story to say, I think it's different for each person. And I think we all, this is like part of the human condition. We all experience this, this sort of expectation setting, expectations not being met, regret. So David, what was the glass shattering moment that made this feel like it was a bigger deal than it was before? Yeah, and I, I, this is the problem of when I have these ideas and I don't write them down and then we record a couple of weeks later. Because th this conversation so far has been... It's it's been certainly related to what I've, I've been thinking about, but this has almost been more of a conversation about rigidity versus flexibility and, and ability to cope uh, through the way life moves. But what I in some ways, what I was actually wanted to get at is more just like um, when you're going into a situation, if you can if you could walk in with no expectations of how it's going to go, it could be a perfectly pleasant thing. But because you've either built it up or built it down in your head beforehand, um, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy is frequently going to uh, come about because of that. Well, and again, back to the media thing, I think a lot of people probably would enjoy movies more if we weren't so uh, beholden to all the movie trailers to get our expectations up. If we could just see more media blind without any expectation of what it would be, I don't know, we might find Hollywood more pleasant. Well, there's a flip side of that because... Anyone who went to go see like um, Oedipus back in ancient Greek time would have already known how the story played out. That's the whole point of dramatic irony is that you know something that's going to happen before the characters know that it's going to happen. I think it depends a lot on the media. So I am firmly in the camp of I don't care about spoilers so much. I care about storytelling. And so you can't spoil a story for me. Um, by telling me how it turns out, because my enjoyment of a story is based off of how the story is told, not the end state of the story. Yeah, the concept of spoilers, uh, like spoiler culture being uh, having really blown up over the past five, ten years, uh, spoiler alert being a thing that is now is common parlance outside of even discussions of movies or whatever. It's been I, I'm aware of some research out there and it's have to take some of it with a grain of salt, but uh, that apparently we're actually happier when we are spoiled. You can enjoy uh, something more um, because you are know what's going to happen versus being on the edge of your seat, even minorly, uh, apparently is a uh, lessens our enjoyment of a thing, which I don't know if I believe like, like that doesn't always seem to, to track with my expectation of how uh, that research would come out. But whenever I, I first read about that a few years ago, that's very much stuck in my head. Yeah, and I again, I'm I'm going to go back to like the varies from person to person, and also from piece of art to piece of art, because there are some pieces of art in which the storytelling motif in it is like the subversion of expectation, right? And so, if you do know how something is going to play out, then the act of the subversion is less emotionally impactful. I think you can still appreciate the technical execution of it, but like emotionally, mm. if you know the subversion before going into it, then it can. I, I'm sympathetic. I can cheapen the experience. And I'd say this is clearly demonstrated in the perfect joke. Like I think the joke premise yeah. setup punchline structure is perfectly set up for the subversion of expectations. 
And if you know the punchline, then it's often not as funny. But if you tell it well, then a joke the fourth, fifth, sixth time can still be funny, even if you know the punchline. That's certainly true with Seinfeld in our family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe that's I've been I've been talking about this in kind of a negative light. And I want to I want to take that back and change the, the thesis. How I got into this a little bit where the thing that I really realized is how much of uh, an emotional state for better or for worse is just derived based on where your expectations and whether the event that actually happens meets exceeds or what's the opposite of exceeds um diminishes uh lessons i mean looking for the perfect antonym is your enemy here fails to meet fails to meet fails to meet that's what i'm looking for the sentence didn't meet my expectations of how brilliant it was going to be (laughs) when it was in my head uh the realization of how much of my emotional state is derived from that duality has been something that i've been really paying attention to uh, in myself over the past couple of weeks I think it's a good life lesson to know how you react to your own expectations about if they're met or unmet and how you can build up your own expectations in such a way where maybe you're a little bit more fault resilient. Take like a long-term relationship or like a romantic relationship or something like that, where if you build up this edifice of expectations around the other human being that's in the relationship with you they're never going to meet all the expectations that you set up for them if you set up this this large edifice and it can be really deleterious to a relationship i think to put people on pedestals to really expect a lot from you know the other flawed fallen meatbags that cohabitate this this earth with us like if you're expecting them to be some sort of godsend soulmate perfect being thing your expectations are often going to be dashed and that can lead to a lot of stress mm-hmm. but if your expectations of this other person are you know just some random schmuck that you can tolerate and the both of you make each other laugh and you can get through this blessed, cursed, blursed existence together uh, in a, a way where you can make each other smile occasionally, then, you know, you might have a, a much stronger relationship. So building expectations can benefit you and they can hurt you. And knowing how to construct those expectations, I think, is a really important thing to learn. Well, I would say that probably the kind of expectation that is consistently dashed, for me anyway, and I would bet for probably most people, is just an expectation over how long tasks will take, Hmm. an expectation for how long things will take. Because I always underestimate how long really anything is going to take me to complete. And every time, like, I'm like, okay, this is going to take 90 minutes. And then three hours later, I'm like, dang it. You know, it's it's always just the use of... And what feels like the misuse of time is something that always certainly grinds my gears. I, I I would say that I'm pretty consistently like always behind in my predictions. And you would think that my brain would just be able to, you know, say, okay, just always add, you know, 75% more to everything you predict. But I am continually amazed that I'm just incapable of doing that. Yeah, that's a good example. There's a a law called Hofstetter's Law, and it's uh, from Douglas Hofstetter. It's a self-referential law. Uh, Let's see if I can get... Hofstetter's Law, colon. It always takes longer than you expect, even when you take into account Hofstetter's Law. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. That's good. To look at the opposite... When something exceeds your expectations, um, you know, th- that could be uh, quite the positive thing. However, I'm also curious about, is there ever a time, is there any reason that lowering your expectations too low can be harmful? That's a deep question. I'll have to think about that one. Off the top of my head, like in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily sound problematic, though I could imagine it being associated with things like low self-esteem. If you associate... Um, well, I am not good enough at whatever, so I'm going to assume that I'm not going to do well at activity X. Then that could be a self-fulfilling prophecy, too, where you meet that expectation, even though you didn't need to. I think that, like you said, it's it's one of those things where moderation in all things, too much of any one thing is usually not a good thing. Uh, I think the only thing that I can think of about 
incorrectly set expectations, either too high or too low, you're specifically asking about too low, but I think this applies in both directions, is if you are engaging in activities that require accurate predictions, Mm. if your expectations are so offset from the typical outcome of the event, then you risk corrupting your ability to accurately predict things. That's Yeah, that's true. I think one of the most frustrating things about the discipline mathematics is that you have no concept of how long anything is going to take. And so, you again, it's one of those situations, like I said, where you might think, well, maybe I'll be able to complete that math problem in, you know, 30 minutes. And then, again, way more time passes. And my experience, at least with doing other disciplines like reading a book or writing a paper, I was usually able to do a better job with predicting how long it would take to do those things. But when it comes to, I think, anything with the math or even the sciences, since so much of that is like exploration and discovery, those things really can't be predicted. And so I think, at least for me, that was always hard to plan around. We should probably wrap this up so we can get to the main topic. Tom expects us to do a lot of cathedral-related conversation today. True. He also expects us to do homework. Yes. Which I did do the homework for once. Yes, Zach and David did actually have homework this time. Uh, we gave them some videos to watch. We gave them? We. Uh, uh, we. Yes, the royal we. <laughs> uh, we gave them at least one video from my childhood. It was actually the first video that I think I mentioned my mom brought home for me from the library uh, one time that got me hooked into the cathedral, so they both watched that. And we're going to use it today sort of be a, a focal point for starting a discussion on the origins of Gothic architecture. Jingle, jingle music. Now, we have already talked in the past about how Gothic architecture has sort of, you know, essential elements that make things Gothic. We've talked about how Gothic architecture uses pointed arches rather than semicircular arches. The pointed arches have a better weight distribution to enable taller structures to be built. And then you also got your flying buttresses, which are also another engineering adaptation to let the spacing of the windows and, you know, the high walls of Gothic cathedrals uh, have more space for stained glass and light. Uh, and then, of course, also the rib vaults that transfer all of their weight into the outer skeleton of those flying buttresses. So, you know, can I ask a quick, can I ask a quick question on that? Um, yeah. Based on those, those main characteristics of what yeah. makes something Good. Gothic. Um is it all in service of height? Are all of the things that they came up with for the Gothic style uh, building on the Roman style that came before just to try to get the building taller? Uh, I would say equal parts measure in both height and light. And light. Okay. Height and light are the, the, the key of Gothic architecture. More height, more light. Gotcha. Um, the more of both, the better. That's helpful because like sometimes like I know that like Gothic architecture is defined by the pointed window or the flying buttresses and all that. I was like, like, who cares? I feel like that's a poor way of saying it because like, who cares right. about those features? It's what those features enable. Exactly. And so I, I like that height and light thing. Yep, height and light. Yeah, th- that's a good point because I don't think we did a very good job of explaining that when we were sort of going over what Gothic architecture was in the first place. We talked about, like you said, the things that enable the final goal so uh, any of you teachers out there listening right now, I can make your stomachs curdle when uh, I say, you know, backwards planning, understanding by design. Mm-hmm. Uh, your goal is more height, more light. So what do you need to accomplish that? But why is it called Gothic, though? Oh, that's a question I have, too. So Gothic architecture is called Gothic because, yes, it is named after the barbarians. I forget particularly if it was the Visigoths or another one of the barbaric tribes to medieval Europe at the time. Ostrogoths. Yeah, Ostrogoths. One of those probably was just a slur for any barbarians back in the day. But again, Gothic was very new and innovative and very controversial. And so the critics of it uh, called it Gothic in hopes of making it have a bad reputation. Ah, Was it contemporary critics? Or I feel like the criticism of it was like, 
from the Renaissance era looking back. I don't think from what I have read, which is, you know, not a whole bunch that anyone at the time was calling it Gothic. That's a good question. And I I don't know the answer to that. I have seen, I think, some conflicting sources that suggested that there were some critics around the medieval time that didn't like it and did call it Gothic around those ages. On the other hand, you're right. It's definitely true that many, many more people probably in the Renaissance really hated it, which is why there was sort of a resurgence of classical architecture during the Renaissance, because people wanted to return to that style rather than that sort of, you know, foreboding Gothic style of the Middle Ages. Um, But my one guess is that it probably isn't exclusively to the Renaissance, only because my guess is it probably was a bigger insult to make reference to the barbarians when the barbarians were actually a threat. And the barbarians wouldn't have been a threat during the Renaissance. So if you're going to insult something, you're probably going to insult something that evokes fear. Yeah, I'm certainly not a uh, medieval peasant. Well, the, the Goths were... Many centuries removed, though, by the time, right? Because the Goths are like 500? Mm-hmm. Now we're just talking about things we don't know at all about, so we should probably move on. That's half the podcast, on. right? It, it, well, okay, I don't think that's entirely fair. <laughs> Depends which host we're talking about. For me, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Goths history. I, I feel like th- this is a good one that warrants a part two, too, so we should probably look this up and bring it back next time. I mean, what is this podcast other than us just reading Wikipedia articles to each other? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what yeah, better late, way late, to- No, I was pretty right. Late fourth century. So, yeah, like, because uh, that's like the sacking of Rome era. So, uh, yeah, the term Gothic, even if it was contemporary to when the, the buildings were being put up, we're talking like a thousand years after they were the primary uh, Germanic people. So someone was using old connotations for some purpose. Yeah. And we, we don't have a complete answer there, but I'm going to stick to my answer because I thought my answer was half decent. And entirely guessed. Maybe we'll find the real answer at some point. Anyway, we gave you guys some homework. And the primary documentary that is an oldie from 1985 is a PBS special with David McCulley, who is a, a famous uh, author who's done some large works, uh, including the, the Way Things Workbook, uh, with a vast illustrated sort of encyclopedia of mechanical things. He's also done a lot of architecture books, including Cathedral, the book. Uh, which actually the documentary was based on. Before we get off that book, Charles and I went to a bookstore on vacation a few weeks back, and there sitting on one of the shelves was Cathedrals by David McCulley. And Charles pointed out, like, oh, just, uh, there's a book for Tom. I'm like, oh, Tom knows that book already. <laughs> I do not need to buy him that. That is probably the quintessential Gothic cathedral book. Like I said, it's it's not like a super scholarly book. It's a very illustrated, almost sort of children's book, but it's quite thorough. It's really just as much aimed at as adults as it is at children. And he did a new version uh, of it with color illustrations that came out sometime in the last decade, because originally the book was published decades ago. Like I said, as was this documentary you guys watched. Uh, so the documentary kind of goes hand in hand with the book. But anyway, about halfway through the documentary, they get into the origins of Gothic architecture. And David McCauley points to a famous church in France, uh, which he calls the Royal Abbey of Saint-Denis, or the Basilica of Saint-Denis, or I guess in English you might say St. Denis. It's a church that is just outside of Paris, and it is what many historians have often pointed to as the progenitor of Gothic architecture. One thing that I was always really mystified by this claim was that every time they would show pictures of Saint-Denis, I would be comparing it to all the other contemporary buildings that were built around the same time or just after it, like Notre Dame or Chartres Cathedral or Reims or Amiens. And I would sort of try to think about, okay, how do the elements in Saint-Denis compare to those? And after I would look and compare them, I would sort of come to the conclusion that it looks like Saint-Denis was built not before a lot of these buildings, but after. Notre Dame looks older than Saint-Denis. Even Chartres looks older than Saint-Denis. And yet here is this documentary with David McCauley claiming that Saint-Denis was built before it. How are you defining looks older? Uh, Because we've talked about dirt before. 
make something look older. What I'm talking about is literally the style and the elements that were used to construct it. Not in terms of aging, but in terms of how they engineered it. How was the building put together piece by piece? And the style in which Saint-Denis was constructed, at least the Saint-Denis that you and I can see today, has more sophisticated engineering in certain ways than even Notre Dame does. David McCauley's documentary is not the only thing that claims this. There's actually quite a few others. There was a Nova documentary on cathedrals that came out a decade ago that also kind of makes the same claim that, oh yeah, it's Saint-Denis. That's sort of, again, this progenitor of Gothic architecture. Everybody saw what they did and then the idea spread out. What we're going to do today is a little activity to get us started here is I put together 10 different illustrations, sections of elevations of naves from different churches that David and Zach are going to take a look at for us. What their task is going to be is blindly see if they can click and drag the 10 different elevational drawings of these churches and sequence them in, in terms of what was built first, what was built second, what was built third. And that can be interpreted a couple different ways. Are you talking about what was started in construction first? Or when was the actual picture drawn of the building? You know, there's different ways that can be interpreted. But we're not going to get into too many specifics right now. We're just going to let them go for it. There's 10 different elevational drawings uh, that I've supplied for you guys. And for these 10 different drawings, they are alphabetical right now. So they're not in any chronological order right now. It's up to you. Our list of candidates includes Amiens Cathedral, Canterbury Cathedral, Chartres Cathedral, Durham Cathedral, Notre Dame de Paris, Reims Cathedral, Basilica of Saint-Denis, Sens Cathedral, Westminster Abbey, and Vézelay Abbey. And I will give you one heads up, one, one thing that does maybe throw off that calculation slightly is that uh, seven out of ten of these are from France and three are from the UK. So uh, I will say that the sequence in which the UK developed its Gothic architecture was a little bit slower than France. So that may affect your answer somewhat, but it'll still mostly come out correctly if you sort of follow this through. So why don't you two uh, take a look at what you see here and uh, maybe describe a little bit about what you see as you click around. So Tom has basically told us he's not going to give us the criteria in which he has ordered them mm -hmm. and that we can come up with our own criteria <laughs> on <laughs> yes. how to order them. Correct. And then when we're wrong, based off of his criteria, then that is somehow subjectivity, an indictment or objectivity against our ability to. Yeah, clearly my whole goal here is to indict you two. Yes, please proceed. I'm going to go based off of the pointiness. Because I think the more archiness is older and the more pointiness is later. I think that's fair. And I want to say height, the taller ones. It looks like he did actually, he did put these to scale. Mm -hmm. They are all to scale. Yep. Based on how tall they are in meters, um, which I presume took him far more time than is reasonable to do. You remember our earlier conversation on expectations and how, oh yeah, that task is going to take X number of hours. <laughs> I was feeling it hard today. <laughs> By those criteria, let's put like Westminster, Rame. And uh, Amiens sort of at the end. Zach, I'm going to start by putting short things first and tall things second. And you can do your pointiness criteria. So this is primary sort height, secondary sort pointiness? Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that completely, but... I'm not, I'm not saying you, you, you... I'm not saying you can change these, absolutely. If there's some things that are taller that you think should be earlier or vice versa, that's fine too. And in case it wasn't obvious, the solutions are on the next tab, but avoid clicking that until we're ready. Is that because it says do not look yet on the tab? That's correct. Okay, here's height. Feel free to mess with it. Oh my goodness. Um, you read this one line to the next? Yeah. I don't know how to print any of these, though. I, I'm guessing I'm going to put some of these UK cathedrals a little bit later in the sequence based off of what Tom was saying. Good call. Good call. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't notice that those two were UK. I would definitely say those those shorter UK ones should be before the Westminster UK, though, by your pointiness standard. What we are uh, looking at right now, these are elevation drawings of what the inside of various cathedrals and abbeys and other famous churches look like. Uh, they are sketches that were sort of drawn by a surveyor. 
And I tried to clean them up a bit. I found them through different sources and stuff. And I scaled them correctly and then vectorized them to clean them up a bit. Um, and actually, later on, I'll have a little downloadable illustration that audience members, you can take a look at just to sort of see what these all compare like. I should also maybe throw one other curveball at you. I'd never said at any point that all of these were gothic. Right. Yeah. So, for example, you should not feel at all obligated to put the Basilica of Saint-Denis first just because I said it was the progenitor of Gothic. Yeah, that one, I don't agree with, even by your pointing a standard, I don't, I don't agree with Saint-Denis being earlier. So, I, I think, I don't know how to pronounce uh, Vele. Vizle. Vizle. That one is, I think, I think it's just as it sounds, uh, Vezele. You pronounce it just as it sounds? That's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so it it does have like the the left hand side of the drawing you know is is rounded and the first floor is also rounded but the like if you look in the upper right those are pretty pointy i mean if you want to do this that's fine i definitely think vizile should be before saint denis all right vizile right, right, right. i have to admit is the one that i am least familiar with so i really have no idea how it's supposed to be pronounced v-e-z-e-l-a-y vandalay industries should definitely be first no it's not vandalay industries vizile, vizile. i'm pretty good with that i could even see putting sands before saint denis i think it's Saul's cathedral yeah i'm good with that bam ship it all right Okay, so what David and Zach have put forth for us is they are guessing that the order in which these different cathedrals and abbeys and other churches were built, they have Vesalay Abbey, Sens Cathedral, Sens. Basilica of Saint-Denis, Saint-Denis, Durham Cathedral, Canterbury Cathedral, can't make fun of those, Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Chartres, Chartres, Westminster Abbey, Amiens, Amen, and Reims. Reims. All right, so I have to say you guys did even worse than I thought you would, so that's unfortunate. Um, I want to point back to the, the, the definition, David, that we came up with for what we said Gothic architecture was all about. Height. And. Light. Right. But these are just. Did you guys once pay attention to how big the windows are? They're huge, and all of them. Mm, are they? Yeah. Yeah, some, some are bigger. I mean, I. I contend that doing height in general also includes window. Like, is there an example here of a shorter one, but with taller windows? No, the tall ones have tall windows. I would say that Durham Cathedral has very tiny windows. Right. And it's also one of the shortest ones here. My point stands. Yeah. You put it after the Basilica of Saint-Denis, though. You told us to put UK things after French things. <laughs> you made that very explicit that we should do that. Look, I, I said in general. I didn't mean all of them. <laughs> I feel misled. That certainly wasn't the intention. No, we established at the beginning that this was specifically a misleading exercise <laughs> just so Tom could berate us about our ordering. This is payback for uh, tourism. Right, it is. All right, let's take a look at the solutions here. It's actually not completely done for you yet. Instead, what we've got on the next page are the exact same tiles. However, this time the dates of start of construction and a date in parentheses of when the elevation at which it would have first existed. Did you just run out of time? Why did you do it this way? What do you mean? Why aren't these in date order? Because I want you to do it, David. This is a learning experience. You're going to do it again, and then you'll iterate on what you did before. This is the answer page. You're not supposed to have to do more work on the answer page. This is called new learning, David. Oh, so see if you can arrange these now in the order of maybe, say, their start date of construction. Whoops, I hit delete by accident. We don't have Amiens anymore. I deleted it. Oh, no, not Amiens. Anything but Amiens. Well, not Notre Dame. I didn't delete Notre Dame de Paris. Okay, maybe we should, uh, all right, this, this is not good. Seems gone. Uh, Zach is not bringing it back. He has the power. He's opting not to use it. It's called new learning. <laughs> <laughs> all right so we had best reveal the correct sequence for construction dates for each of these monuments so the earliest of these built was durham cathedral began in 1093 the second vesele abbey started in 1120 sans cathedral started in 1135 and then the basilica of saint denis 
started also in 1135. Shortly after came the giant cathedrals, the first of which Notre Dame de Paris, 1163, followed by Canterbury Cathedral, 1175, Chartres Cathedral, 1194, Reims Cathedral, 1211, Amiens Cathedral, 1220, and Westminster Abbey, 1245. And you'll notice that we do have the Basilica of Saint-Denis quite early, before Notre Dame, before a lot of these other cathedrals. But like I said, if you compare the window sizes of these sort of elevational drawings, the Basilica of Saint-Denis has large windows in its clerestory. The clerestory is the large windows at the highest point closest to the ceiling or to the vaulting of a cathedral. This is what really tipped me off when I first saw pictures of Saint-Denis. It's got these large windows, and if you look at Notre Dame in the next picture, Notre Dame is considerably smaller windows. And again, I thought, well, that doesn't quite make sense, because if Notre Dame's trying to copy it, wouldn't they try to do it bigger? Not long ago, just in the last year, I guess really about in 2020, there was a new YouTuber who is an architectural historian uh, named Miles Zhang, who uh, has some great videos on architecture that I want to refer everybody to. And he had a particularly great 20-minute thesis that he put out on the origins of Gothic architecture, which we'll link in our show notes. His thesis basically is that this narrative, saying that the Royal Abbey of Saint-Denis was the progenitor of Gothic architecture, is perhaps, at least his argument, is perhaps not as simple of a story as what the real truth actually is. And there was a missing piece of information that I never realized before, and that what we see today of Saint-Denis is that it is not the same building that was built in the Middle Ages before all these other great Gothic cathedrals. Much of it was rebuilt later. And so it's kind of a strange thing to say that, oh, this building gave everybody else the idea when most of it doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I note that YouTuber said that their mentor is someone who you've been following very closely as well, Stephen Murray, who you, the audience may remember was referenced in that seminar that Tom fanboyed over. Stephen Murray was one of the presenters. That's true. Yeah. He is a medieval art historian uh, from Columbia University. And again, we'll put in the show notes here, Miles Zhang's thesis. But what I wanted you guys to, again, note about these different pictures that we've been sequencing is that if you look at a lot of these large windows at the top of each different picture, called the clerestory windows, they do get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as they progress in time. The picture for Notre Dame in particular is not quite original to how Notre Dame's clerestory windows were originally built. Notre Dame, to uh, its misfortune, was built just a little too early to really benefit from a lot of the engineering that was being developed at the same time. And then when a lot of the other cathedrals like Chartres and Reims and Amiens had such uh, success with their great clerestory windows, Notre Dame sort of backtracked and said, we want that too. So they tried to enlarge their windows as best as they could in their clerestory. Is that when some of the destruction happened intentional destruction well i would say renovation so this is still the middle ages i want to point out that looking at this image mm -hmm. if you pull out durham canterbury westminster and you just look at the french if you line them up by height yep. you get the correct order yes which was what i said yes 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 that 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 is for the most part true and in fact, again, this is certainly not a comprehensive list of every cathedral. Like I said, I picked some of the most famous ones and to give a good sense of lineage of Gothic architecture. Um, did you guys notice again uh, how, like, especially for some of the earliest ones, like Durham, we have these semicircles for a lot of the arches? Yeah, that was, that was Zach's whole thing. Zach, how would you describe how the shape of the arch is slowly transitioning from one image to the next? Um, I don't see what I was looking for, but my criteria for my sorting was based off of the pointiness of the arches. Okay. And I think what you're, what you're looking for is for me to reinforce that narrative with the images, but I don't, I don't quite agree with that. Really? Shart throws it off. Shart throws it off. And Canterbury as well. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, even Notre Dame is pretty rounded 
Yeah. Like the Basilica of Saint-Denis is pointier than Notre-Dame de Paris. Right. Well, uh, so that's again where we run into the issue of we actually don't know what the Basilica of Saint-Denis looked like before um, it was renovated to how it looks today. And so the image that I have right here, while I have it sequenced before Notre Dame, that is a bit of a misleading truth that it really, like you guys have on your paper when you put them based on when the image is drawn, would actually be more appropriately placed after Notre Dame for that very reason. So your instincts are correct. And by instincts, you mean the things that you've been pounding into our heads. Got it. And why don't you look at the slide deck that I have here, because this will actually give you photographs of what we're really talking about. So the very first one we said on this list is actually Durham Cathedral. And Durham is English, or uh, it's, you know, it's in the UK. And I would say, again, out of all these different churches, it's got the most semicircular arches. Durham is probably the most quintessential example of Romanesque architecture. Uh, I should have said this earlier, but Romanesque architecture is the predecessor to Gothic architecture. It's sort of what came before, uh, and then there's this transition we're sort of investigating today between Romanesque with the very rounded arches and small windows and bulky walls and columns to, again, the very sort of lacy Gothic architecture with all the light and the pointed arches. And then as we transition through the next few slides here, you'll see that, you know, again, we sort of have some more Romanesque buildings. Vézelay Abbey is still largely Romanesque with small windows, but you start to see that the vaulting in the ceiling is more elaborate. Sans Cathedral starts to feel more Gothic because it's got a larger clerestory, larger windows in the top. And you see just the subtlest hint of some of the pointed arches around the arcade the lowest level of these elevations this is one of those things where you can definitely like if you look at the first one to the last one you can clearly see to be clear the first one is durham the last one being westminster you can definitely see dramatic change over time but then like when you look from one to the next it's definitely more subtle but leading to that ultimate full gothic that westminster represents exactly zach what do you see you were quiet too long. I'm calling you out. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm having some difficulty finding the the things that you guys are referring to in these images because I'm looking at Amiens right now, mm -hmm. and the clear story windows are super duper narrow, and there's a lot of stone in that upper third section of the building. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, if you go back to San, then there's a lot of window. Yeah. Like, in the clear story. And the windows there are, are I, I, I guess I'm not getting, like, a good sense of scale, but mm -hmm. just from the images alone, I'm not seeing the elements that you're trying to point out consistently. It's... It's definitely difficult with photographs, and one of the reasons that I provided you with the scaled elevations, again, was to give you a sense of just how small versus how tall some of these places are. It's a good point you have, though, Zach, about the tracery in the clerestory windows. The tracery is what those thin connections of stone between one bar of glass to the next to the next is. Mm -hmm. The tracery really doesn't block that much light. You can kind of think of that whole conglomerate of glass and thin pieces of stone really lets a lot of light out. So, um, and none of that stone is structural, I should say. None of that tracery has any load-bearing part to it at all. All the load-bearing stone is on the edges of that arched window. I guess when I was doing my calculus, I was going for like total area of window and I was subtracting from it the tracery. And you're saying that that probably wasn't the right calculus. Well, I think... I think it is correct, but I think if you really had the numbers in front of you, you would still find that the total amount of glass up there is much of a higher surface area than these tiny little windows of Durham. They don't look tiny. Oh, at Durham, Durham, yeah. At Durham. No, but Durham wasn't the one that I was comparing it with. Comparing it. Sorry, which one were you comparing it to? Sans. Oh, Sans? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, first of all, Sans Cathedral is already definitely on its way to being more gothic it's arguably Sans cathedral could be just as much of a progenitor of gothic architecture 
as the Basilica of Saint-Denis is. And that's one thing that, again, I want to give credit. Miles Zhang says in his video, he sort of points at other contributors to Gothic architecture. This is another example that could have had serious influence. I think you can tell, granted, frame of reference is, is different, and, and so the scale isn't exactly right, though. But Amiens is pretty clearly taller yeah. than Sans even in these images. They're from they're taken from different angles, but the windows are in this Amiens photo are a little smaller maybe, but that's partially because they're so much higher up. Yeah. They're extremely high. It's a very high vault. Yeah. And I think what you you're pointing out that the interlaced stone in the middle not being load bearing is pretty important because there could be even more light. They just opted not to for aesthetic reasons, I guess. Well, it might be structural, not for the building, but structural for the glass. Uh, it could be. So if you had a stained glass, isn't a single pane without that tracery in there. It seems like it would be pretty brittle. Yeah, the tracery is, I mean, I, I know I said it wasn't structural for like the weight of the building, but I, I at the very least, you could say it's somewhat structural for just containing all the pieces of glass. One thing that I think is a fair critique of the whole concept of Gothic architecture is lighter and brighter is that, yeah, like you said, some of these earlier buildings do look pretty light inside. Like Vézelay Abbey, for example, does, even though it does got small windows, maybe it's just the photograph, maybe somebody brightened up or touched up the photograph. But even with the small windows, it seems quite bright inside. Whereas if you look at one of the later ones, like Reims Cathedral, if you look at that picture, it actually looks quite dark inside, doesn't it? Even though it's got giant windows. Yeah, that one's very dark. Yeah, it looks very dark. It's got a similar kind of gloominess to Notre Dame. Yep. I think, David, you've talked a little bit about how surprised you were how gloomy Notre Dame was sometimes in the past. Yep. If you compare Notre Dame to Reims, they seem quite similar in terms of their darkiness to them. I think one of the primary things that often gets lost in description of Gothic architecture is to what effect stained glass versus just pure white glass or clear glass has on the gloominess. My guess is if you switched out much of the stained glass at Reims Cathedral with just clear glass, you would end up with something about as bright as Amiens. Because when you go down to Amiens in the next picture, you'll see that that's quite bright up there, you know? And even Westminster... Amiens, you can tell it's a little bit of stained glass, but then in Westminster, pretty sure that that is just clear glass. That doesn't, there doesn't seem to be stained. Yeah, a lot of it's just clear glass, yes. But even in that photo, you can see like down all the way, it gets pretty dark at the far end. So presumably, you know, that's where there's, there's less of those windows. So yeah, I think that, that speaks to your point of how much that can bring in. Take a look at the picture again for uh, Sans Cathedral. If you look at, not on the left, but on the right, uh, you notice how the clerestory windows on the right of this photograph are considerably smaller than the ones on the left. That's partially because this is sort of, again, a, a transformative building. They tried the larger style for the transept of this building, the crossing, but the nave and the choir have sort of the more traditional Romanesque windows, the smaller windows. And if you look at the vaulting above these smaller windows on the right of this photograph here, you'll notice that you sort of have these crossed ribs of the vault. And there's two windows sort of inset to the cross of those ribbed vaults there on the right of Sans Cathedral. And that happens in repetition for each different section. Every time you get to a new cross of ribs, you have sort of two windows in set for each single crisscross. This is called a sexpartite vault. Um, and it's sort of an earlier kind of vaulting that was often used in early Gothic churches or late Romanesque. And Notre Dame, if you go to Notre Dame's picture, Notre Dame has sexpartite vaults. And I actually kind of like sexpartite vaults because I think they're more artistic. I think they're kind of counterintuitive and they don't feel simple and geometric. By the time I get to some of the later cathedrals like Chartres Cathedral or probably again the best examples, take a look at Reims Cathedral again or Amiens. These are called quadripartite vaults. And that's because rather than sort of having the vault broken to six parts, there's only four parts per vault. 
And rather than having two little windows inset into the vault, you have one big window, one big clerestory window set for that single unit of vaulting. Do you know of King's College Chapel in Cambridge? Is that gothic? Yeah, it's gothic. It's a later gothic, yeah. Well, that makes sense that it's later because if you're speaking about how the ceiling gets more intricate over time. I remember when I went to Cambridge, King's College, and walked in just being completely struck by how ridiculous the the, the ceiling there is going every which way, uh, all of the ribbings. Uh, so it makes sense that that's something that developed over time and it's at the later end. I think it's fair to say actually that English vaulting was extremely complex and intricate. In a lot of ways, the vaulting in English cathedrals is far more ornate and artistic. Certainly in Cambridge. Yeah, in Cambridge, definitely. That's the quintessential example. Do you have a favorite out of curiosity? Out of all these different churches, I'm curious if you have any ones that touch you aesthetically. Uh, and the the thing that's difficult for me to answer that question is that we're looking at paragraphs and not inside the space itself. So your question, which one do I like? I'm having a difficult time separating that question from which picture do I like the most? Yeah, I agree. That's fair. That's fair. I really like the St. Denis picture because... Yeah, I like the St. Denis one the most. The, the colors are beautiful, yeah. but that's just a photographer that really knew how to use the colors on the, the film. Well, it's post-processed pretty dramatically. This is not too far off from what the real experience would really be like. Like you said, it's blown out a bit with the contrast, but it is quite colorful. St. Denis has some of the best collection of stained glass. I mean, the the thing, again, it's it's not just the colors, it's also the composition of the photo, like the, the way that the photo is laid out. It's like if you have a, a food dish and you're trying to separate like different flavors, the compositional element of these photos is just overpowering me more than than anything else i don't want to rag on your photos too much oh, for the record i did not take all these most of these are from wikipedia commons <laughs> sure sure one or two of them are mine but most of them are not mine they're most of them are from wikipedia commons i was trying to say i don't know which ones are yours and which ones aren't yeah but like i know you outed yourself for the Amiens one yeah i did and that one is yours and you're not a professional photographer no and again i don't want to rag on you but <laughs> yeah you do rag away <laughs> no, the some of these other pictures are taken by professional photographers and your question which one do I like is being skewed more by the photographer skill than it is by the architecture skill. What's what Zach is saying is he's not sure if the expectations that are being set by these photos are what he would actually experience if he went there in real life. That's funny. This this is exactly the same thing that I experienced when I saw Mike, Michelangelo's David for the first time in Florence, because uh, I'd seen countless photographs of it, good, bad, professional, amateur. And I was like, oh, whatever, big statue. I've never been super into sculpture anyway. And when I actually saw it in person, I was just blown away by it. It was amazing. It exceeded your expectations. It exceeded my expectations dramatically. I I think that this is another one of those times where Yes, absolutely. The photographs can only do so well. Maybe one day when our podcast is properly funded, we can all do some trips abroad and we can record on the fly as we visit cathedrals. Damn, you have optimistic hopes. I would I would temper those expectations. <laughs> for now, though, this is about the best I can do for you. Certainly. certainly. Other than, you know, maybe Google Earth. <laughs> I'm going to put you in VR. But even still, like there's a the resonance of the hall. I mean, we were talking about the the musicality of the the chambers in the previous episode. Like there's there's something that is imparted on your senses by being inside the space that definitely photographs, but also video don't impart on your senses. I don't want to go too deep into the language episode that we were doing, but the one of the difficulties that I'm having with talking about sex partite ribbing and the quad partite ribbing and stuff like yeah. that is that it's a lot of contextless language for me. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm. Like, I don't know what these things are supposed to represent in the language of architecture. Not not just like sex partite means divided into six parts, right? Like, I, I get that and I can see right. it in the, the photos. But like, mm -hmm. what is the idea 
that is trying to be expressed by using one or the other, mm-hmm. it's completely meaningless to me. Like, it, it doesn't help looking at it because I'm, I'm not getting that experience of being in it. Sure. It's, it's another difficulty that I have, like, reacting to these. You guys have been in these spaces, that, and I don't have that, like, shared experience. To be clear, I've been into one of these. Two. Two. I've been two. I've been into how many of these? I've been into three or four. But it, it doesn't have to four. be just in this list, right? You you referenced the sure. Oxford one, right? Mm-hmm. Cambridge. Yeah. But now Cam- you're going to be pilloried <laughs> by. Oh, no. We just lost another part of the Venn diagram. <laughs> you mentioned the Liverpool Cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> like, you guys live close enough to the, the National Cathedral that you've been in it more mm-hmm. than I have. Right. Like these are these are experiences that the the language of the architecture is able to speak to you more clearly. And so I'm just I'm trying to express my I'm, I'm trying to keep up with you guys. I'm, I'm oh, yeah. I'm just having some difficulty. Oh, by all means, you guys need to rein me in in particular. Oh, man. Now I'm understanding why my uh, sister-in-law said that Zach was the relatable one. I thought I was the relatable one. Dang it. <laughs> well, to, to one question you had there. Like, what's the context of a sexpartite volt versus a quadripartite volt, right? You know, why one over the other? You can kind of see what it is, but what's the significance of it? Right. Right. You know, this is one of your frustrations, right? This is a bit of a mystery to me, Zach. Um, I have actually wondered that very question for a long time. How did they use sexpartite for so long and then switch to quadripartite when in my eyes, sexpartite looks more complicated and it looks more artistic? And it looks like a pain to build. <laughs> if you actually look at quadripartite volts, um, they're just a rectangle. They're really just a rectangle that has a big X in the middle uh, with two ribs crossing each other. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't poo-poo it that much. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the... So Sans and Saint-Denis yeah. are right next to each other on, on the list. Yes. And Sans has the sexpartite... Yep. And Saint-Denis has an example of uh, quadripartite. Exactly. And so it's it's really easy to contrast and compare. Yep. And the quadripartite one, while the vaulting certainly looks less ornate, I don't know if ornateness is what you're going for, mm-hmm. that, that certainly can be a dimension. And you might want to max out on ornateness. And I agree with you, the sexpartite one pushes that scale for the ribbing. But the stained glass on the quadripartite is so much more visible. That's that's very true. Yeah, I hadn't picked up on that. That's the whole idea. Uh, I'm glad you picked up on this, Zach. It's that while the sexpartite vaults themselves look more intricate, again, we have to go back to first principles here. What's the goal? Higher and lighter. And you can get bigger windows with a quadripartite vault. Uh, with just the four pieces that are more simply configured on the ground plan in a rectangle. Even though the sexpartite vault looks quite cool, it is not the principal goal of what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, But it is still a mystery to me, like you said, that it looks like sexpartite vaults look like they took more engineering to construct. So I wonder if somebody down the road said, why are we putting all this effort into this very complex vault when we should really just make it so much simpler and make a bigger window? Some of the choir vaulting is really insane. I'm really impressed all around on, on all the pictures that include the choir. But that's that's the part that everyone is looking at, or everyone in the congregation. Right. The I mean, we've seen this picture before, but the one at Chart, right, of the choir and then the semicircular apse, or I guess the hemicycle, those five windows that sort of surround that semicircle those are some of my favorite parts to all of these cathedrals. They're just so cool to look at. One additional thing about Chart, uh, and I don't want to bring up a sore point uh, with you. Uh, really? The lighting on the central sculpture. The the lighting on the central sculpture is really exquisite, and it really makes it pop. Yeah. Uh, and I know sculpture is not like your strong suit, but... doesn't mean it's my sore point. I, I appreciate sculpture. It just tends to be the thing I don't pay attention to. But I'm happy that you're bringing it up. Yeah, I agree. I, I, that's another one. I'm curious how much uh, the photographer... Or Tom, did you take that one? No. From Wikipedia Commons. <laughs> Zach is just like... Zach knew. Zach is <laughs> like, that's definitely not Tom's yeah. photo. <laughs> 
I'm guessing that a lot of the lighting on the the sculpture is artificial lighting as well. It looks like there's a lot of point light. Yeah, I think um, you're right. Put onto it, but I don't think that's out of character if you are trying to emphasize light in your interior aesthetic. Sure, because a lot of these buildings have like. If, if we look at that, they all have a lot of electronic lighting like built into the roof right. as well. Like Notre Dame, I actually really dislike the photo that you picked for this because <laughs> the spotlights that are like the AV system that they have set up is yeah. so distracting from the rest of the photo. I know. Well, you, you remember our earlier conversation of like, are they going to clean the walls? Are they going to clean off all the soot, right? You can imagine that to some extent, if they did that, Notre Dame's picture here would look a little bit more like Chartres' picture, which is considerably brighter down there, right? And I don't think they have nearly the level of artificial lighting blasting the choir that Notre Dame does. So it'd be interesting. It would be interesting if that isn't necessary if they were to do that cleaning. But I, I think the the difficulty that this photographer had taking the picture of Notre Dame is that the congregation isn't typically from this perspective. And so the congregation isn't going to have these lights blaring in their their face. Those lights aren't detracting from the experience of the congregation. I'm imagining sitting in the, the nave is actually quite pleasant and quite bright enough. It looks bright enough. Uh, it's not. It's gloomy. Gloomy. Well, I, I should also say, though, that these all of these cathedrals, especially Notre Dame, their gloominess is very dependent on the time of day. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, and I when I look at this picture for Notre Dame, I'm easily thinking this is around late afternoon or maybe even dusk uh, because I know I've been in there midday and it definitely felt a lot brighter than this. One thing I really dislike about the Notre Dame photo and the lighting there is that I hate all the yellow lighting. I really don't like like 3000K wavelength lighting that you, you know, usually get when you buy light bulbs. I much prefer just the pure daylight bright white that you would get from normal daylight. And since the spotlights are not the same temperature as the chandeliers, I think that's really jarring. Yes. <laughs> not going to rag on your favorite cathedral. This is just a more than you already have. A well a, a well composed but a poorly situated photo. Well, the reason I shared the Notre Dame photo was not simply because I thought it was a good photo, but was because it did a good enough job to <laughs> illustrate the elevation comparison between the clearstory windows on the right and the clearstory windows on the left. Did you notice that? Uh, a little bit. Um... Do you notice how you have tall clearstory windows? towards the right middle. Yeah. But then on the left, you have these much tinier windows in the clear street at the very tip top with these oculi circular holes underneath them. I think that's going back to like when you criticized us for organizing the cathedrals in such a way and you're like, look at how big the windows are. And I'm like, I am not seeing what you're seeing clearly because I am seeing small windows. <laughs> it does, those those tiny little windows up there do feel like they were just like, well, we've got a little bit of extra space. Might as well cram a window in here. I don't think that's what they were doing. No, that's not at all what I'm, they I, were I'm doing. I'm not saying that, but that's what it feels like. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> what those tiny little windows are is you have to imagine that's what the entire nave of Notre Dame looked like when it was first built. You have to imagine that the taller windows used to look like those tiny little windows with the oculi that's not really lit at all underneath it, all the way down, all the way around on both sides. The little windows that are still left are actually rebuilt by one of the restorers, Ville-le-Duc, because he wanted to give people some semblance of what the original cathedral actually did look like back in its day. But again, people fairly early on in the construction of Notre Dame realized that they were not getting nearly enough light from those tiny little things. So they tried to en enlarge the clearstory. And in fact, those tiny little windows in this photograph did at one point look like the taller clearstory windows as well. It was, again, Ville-le-Duc who decided to revert a few of them back to the old ones just to give people the juxtaposition. So when you're looking at, again, the different elevation drawings of these cathedrals, as well as these photographs, 
after you watch the documentary that I prescribed to you and after you watch Miles Zeng's video, what kind of sense do you have for how the evolution happened between Romanesque architecture and Gothic architecture? Do you feel like it's more fluid than it used to be? The Gothic stuff has all been skewed by like high Gothic architecture. That's really sort of exaggerated, exceptionally tall, exceptionally, to use your word, lacy, uh, exceptionally skeletal. And it was my dearth of experience of sort of that middle time yeah. that that made them feel so divorced mm, that's interesting. from early medieval architecture that looks very Romanesque. It was almost a quantum leap between uh, the, the Romanesque cathedrals and the, the high Gothic cathedrals. But just getting more exposure to what you, Tom, and you, David, have been saying is getting taller, getting more light in, those things really drive the evolution of the design. It's it's not so much in my mind anymore a quantum leap as it is just a steady progression over 500 years of building cathedrals of, I want to show my devotion to the Pope so that we get more trade and more power in the church by having an even awesomer cathedral than the last. Mm-hmm. It's sort of that desire to go bigger and better than the last one that's really pushing these this architectural language. I expect more height and more light. It's clear that there's some kind of intellectual diffusion going on where a little bit of one construction project, the knowledge gained from that gets spread throughout the land to the next place, to the next place, to the next place. And what I, I just, again, I wanted to really appreciate Miles Zhang's video on YouTube because I think he's hit it bang on the head that it's not so simple to say that All the Gothic architecture really just sort of comes from this one church, Saint-Denis. Sure, I'm sure it had lots of influence, but it certainly wasn't the primary progenitor that everything originates from as far as Gothic art and style comes from. There's so many other contributing places as well, especially like Saint's Cathedral. One other, I think, reason that Saint-Denis has been referred to so often in the past as like the primary culprit that caused all this Gothic revolution is the abbot Suget, the guy in charge of Saint-Denis during those early Gothic periods, he just took really good notes. <laughs> he took really good notes and he shared them with everybody. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these other places did not keep the same kind of records that abbot Suget did. And so for some reason, a lot of our historians have pointed to that and say, oh, wow, look at this wonderful historical record. Oh, clearly this is the place where it all happened, right? So this is, I think, another example where just because we have more data doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that the focal point is here. History is written by whoever decided to write it. Histories are written by the writers. (laughs) (laughs) Or no, even better than that. History is written by the people who actually knew how to write. There you go. There we go. That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building.